Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. And it's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. But rejoices with the truth. It always protects. Always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Great to be here and great to be continuing this sermon series, Love Is, as we look at this most wonderful of subjects, love, from this most uh, beautiful of passages, 1 Corinthians 13. Um, Most of you will know, I think, that I have uh, two little boys, uh, Jack and Isaac, although I should let you know. Actually, recently I've just been down to some official offices, just done a bit of official uh, business, and, uh, and now they are legally known as Ole and Gunnar. Um, <clears throat> uh, the only thing with this is if, if you do see my wife around, if you, if you don't mention it to her, I haven't run this by her just yet, uh, so if you do see her, please don't mention it to Becky, or, uh, or Romelu, as she's now known. Um, <clears throat> None of that's true, obviously. Uh, But one of the things that I love to do with my boys, Jack is four now, Isaac will be two in uh, just a couple of weeks' time. One of the things I love to do with them is to play jigsaw puzzles. Because Isaac's so young, it's only sort of three or four-piece jigsaw puzzles, but nevertheless, it's great fun. You kind of put them all just about in place, and then he bashes them down, and it's great, great to do. Jack, on the other hand, though, with a two-year head start, um, he's really doing some quite big jigsaw puzzles now, some quite complex ones. And I confess to you that sometimes we actually get stuck and can't finish them. And what do you do when you can't finish a jigsaw puzzle? Well, what we do is we get the jigsaw puzzle box lid. And what does it have on the lid of the box? It has the perfect picture. What the jigsaw puzzle is going to be when it's complete, what it was designed to be. And then what we can do is we can look at our jigsaw puzzle and we can see the bits we've got in the right place. And we can see the bits that we've got missing and need to put in place. And by doing that, comparing the perfect picture to our incomplete picture, from there we can make progress. We can complete the picture. I want to say this, 1 Corinthians 13 is the perfect picture of love. It is, if you like, the box lid. And when we look at 1 Corinthians 13 today and in this sermon series, we're not looking at it just to say how beautiful it is to sit back and admire. We want to look at it very practically. We will admire it, but we want to look at it practically as well. And we want to look and say, there's the perfect picture of love. There's what God has designed all human beings to be. All of us, we're all designed to be that perfect embodiment of love. And yet since the fall, all of us have become an incomplete picture of love. And what we want to do is we want to look at that perfect picture. And we want to compare it to our incomplete picture. And by way of encouragement, we want to say, here's some of the pieces I've got in the right place. And by way of challenge, we want to look at that perfect picture of love. We want to say, what pieces do I need to put down? to complete the picture, to become more loving. Now, outside of Jesus Christ and this side of eternity, I don't think anybody is ever going to complete the picture, if you like. No one is ever going to be perfect in love. But I do believe all of us can grow in love. And that's why I've called this sermon Growing in Love. That is what we're going to do. We're going to look at the perfect picture, or at least part of it, and we're going to compare our incomplete picture and see if we can't grow. 
But somebody may object, Tom, love is not like that. Love is a feeling and an intense feeling. It's not something you can just turn on and off. It's something you fall in and out of. We can't just choose to do it. You can't grow in it just by comparing it to a jigsaw puzzle. But the answer to that, of course, is to say, well, which type of love are we talking about? Which type of love is the Apostle Paul talking about in 1 Corinthians 13? As Steve told us last week in that brilliant opening to the sermon series, in the ancient Greek language, the language of the New Testament, the ancient Greeks had many different words for love, and all of them had different meanings. And yet when they're translated into English, they're all translated by the single English word love, and therefore some of that meaning is lost in translation. Let me give you an example. Uh, They had the word eros, from which we get erotic. That is, the love between the sexes. We could call that attraction love. They had another word. They had the word philia. Uh, That's the love between friends. We could call that affection love. And neither of those are the words translated here in 1 Corinthians 13. That word is agape. And I like to think of agape as attention love. It's a love that attends to the needs of others, often at sacrifice to itself. And it's a very beautiful love because you don't have to be attracted to somebody or have affection for somebody in order to attend to somebody, in order to give attention to their needs. And therefore, this is a kind of love that every single one of us can choose to do. This is a love that goes beyond feelings, that goes beyond a mere fall in and out of type thing. This is a love that we can put into action, a love that we can practice, a love that we can choose to do. And therefore, it is a love that every single one of us can grow in. And I believe, and I would say, like as I've been working through this in preparation over the last few weeks, just looking at this perfect picture has really had a profound effect on my life. And I believe I really have grown in this type of love. I believe if every single one of us can grow in this type of love, it's going to make a significant difference. Not just here as a local church at Kingsgate, but to outsiders looking in. There's a a famous story, a famous quote from church history. Uh, A theologian called Tertullian once talked about um, non-Christians looking in at the church in the second century uh, and comparing what they were seeing in the church, the sort of barbaric, pagan uh, culture around them. And they said this, look at these Christians, look at how they love one another. And I believe if every single one of us can look at the perfect picture and can start putting the pieces down and can grow in love, then people will start, or if they already are, they will continue to say, look at that person, look at how they love other people. Look at those people there at Kingsgate. See how they love one another. And so what we're going to do, we're going to look at the perfect, not all of it, we're going to look just at verse 4 today. I sometimes say to Jack when we're getting going on a puzzle, why don't we start with one of the corners? Well, maybe we can think about it like that. We're going to look at one of the corners, if you like. Verse 4, and we're going to see how we can grow in love. Verse 4 says this, Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, It is not proud. And so I have two things that we can do to help us apply this, to put us on our way to completing the picture, and to help us grow in love. And the first one is this. Number one, let's cultivate love's courtesy. Uh, Could you say that for me, please? Number one. The first part of verse four says this. Love is patient. Love is kind. 
Here, kindness probably doesn't need much clarification. That's just when we're being kind. We talk about that kind of thing all the time. Doing something for somebody else's benefit, whether they deserve it or not. But patience probably needs a little bit of clarification here. Uh, the Greek word is makrithomea. It doesn't mean so much uh, patience in terms of just uh, waiting for your train or waiting for your bus if it's late or something like that. It means patience when it comes to people. Uh, it quite literally means something like being long-tempered as opposed to short-tempered. Well, the older versions used to say long-suffering, and I think that's a helpful way of thinking about it. It's about being patient, about bearing with other people. In Ephesians 4.2, it says this, being patient, bearing with one another in love. So that's why I've used courtesy here. This is in a relational context. To be courteous is to be considerate of other people. And so when we talk about patience and kindness here, we're thinking about uh, love's courtesy. We're thinking about being considerate of others. And I don't think these two words, patience and kindness, are here together by accident. If I can put it like this, if love's courtesy is a coin, then patience is one side and kindness is the other. And I think I can illustrate about um, 10 years ago, I was here at Kingsgate on a Wednesday evening and our, our senior pastor, Dave Smith, uh, was doing a, a theological seminar on the Wednesday evening. Uh, around that time, we were going through a sermon series looking at the big questions of life. It was called Life After Life. We were looking at life and death and what happens after you die and heaven and hell and so on. And that stuff, stuff about the end times, brings up some all sorts of theological questions. And so at the end of the series on this Wednesday night, Dave was doing this theological um, symposium or whatever you might call it. And so there were lots of us there and you know, I greatly enjoyed it. And at the end, I wanted to go up and ask Dave some theological questions and ask him about some of the writers and so on that he'd been talking about throughout the series. And so I was gonna go up and have a chat with him. But I was a little bit tentative about going up and that was for a couple of reasons. Number one, have kind of had my fingers burned by that kind of thing in the past. You know, when you hear someone talk a lot, you think you know them, and then you go and speak to them, and they haven't really got time for you. Fair enough, they're tired or whatever, but it can be a little bit of a burn. Not in church, I hasten to add, but I have had that kind of thing. Uh, but secondly, um, this was about 10 years ago, and I didn't really know Dave back then. Didn't even know if he'd actually remember my name. You know, it'd be different now. We, we know each other well. We're, we're friends, aren't we? Was that Dave? <clears throat> All right, we're best friends. Sorry, he's just... a bit needy. Anyway. I wasn't even sure if he'd uh, remember me. Anna knew, you know, he'd done this long series, etc. He'd had a full day's work, and then he'd had to, you know, go through this whole talk and everything. Uh, and even though it was 10 years ago, he wasn't exactly what you'd call a young man back then. And so... <clears throat> I... I thought maybe he'd be tired, but regardless, <laughs> I tentatively took steps towards him. But I needn't have been tentative, because actually, as I got up close to him, he turned away from uh, his lectern, and he said, oh, hi, Tom, and he came and he gave me a hug, and then I asked him a couple of questions, and it seemed to be going well, so I asked him a couple of more, and we chatted for a little bit. You know what that is? That's patience. I don't doubt that actually it probably was a little bit of an irritation having somebody come up when you've just had a long sermon series and done most of the teaching and then a few days work and then, you know, you're tired, you've done all this teaching, you want to get home to hearth and wife and here is some glasses wearing boffin asking you all sorts of things about what you've, what you've just been talking about. But nevertheless, he was patient. But he wasn't just patient with me. He did something else. Now, unbeknownst to Dave around that time, I was actually feeling rather discouraged. I've been a Christian for two or three years, I think, something like that. 
at this time. I've been gloriously saved, been given a real passion for the word and for study. But to be honest with you, I was just wondering whether I was overdoing it, whether I was really getting anything out of doing all this reading and studying and so on. You know, now I do a bit of preaching and teaching. It makes sense that I would read and study. But back then I wasn't. And I was just thinking, is this really worthwhile? Am I wasting my time? Should I be doing other things? I was just feeling rather discouraged. And after, I didn't say this to Dave, but after we had this chat and I asked these few theological questions, etc., Dave said to me, Tom, I want to commend you for being a student of the word. And I just want to encourage you to just keep on reading and keep on digging into the scriptures. I don't think I've ever um, told him I've said this, but it was a real encouragement to me just to keep going with these things. You know what that was? That was kindness. See, patience, if you like, is the kind of passive side of love's courtesy. It's the passive side of the coin. It's just a spirit of non-retaliation. It's bearing with somebody. But kindness is active. Kindness is actually doing something for their benefit. Apparently, the root of the Greek word is usefulness. It's doing something that's useful for somebody else. So love is patient. Love is kind. So I've got a question to ask you. How are you doing with these? Are you patient? Are you kind? As you look at the perfect picture and patience and kindness, the pieces there, how are you doing? Have you got those pieces in place? You know, if you ask me about patience, I'd have to have a think. If you tell me, ask me, do I love my kids? I'd say, yeah, of course I love my kids. If you ask me, are you patient with your kids? I'd say, well, <laughs> I mean, it depends on the situation, and of course there's Brexit, and there's lots of, you know, and so on. <laughs> you can get that into anything these days, I've noticed. You know. <laughs> but here's the thing, love is patient. And so I can ask myself the question, if I love them, why aren't I patient with them sometimes? And it's true in church as well, isn't it? Sometimes, and you know, without going into detail, but there may be people in your life groups or in your situations when you're serving or whatever there might be that you have to um, display patience with. We should actually rejoice in that because it's putting down the jigsaw pieces. It's a way of practicing that patience. So how are you doing with that? How are you doing in terms of patience? What about kindness? If I may tell another story with David. Um, I remember um, I was once had a meeting with Dave and a few other guys here at Kingsgate, and it was in the evening, and I had to leave the meeting early because I was going on the marriage preparation course. Just to clarify, this was before I was married to Becky, and it was the marriage preparation course with Becky, okay? Just, just in case I get <laughs> accused of bigamy at the end of this, okay? <laughs> Again, that was a joke. Okay. And because I had to leave early, I was just sort of getting my stuff ready, ready to go out the door. And Dave was saying, like, well, you know, have a good time on the marriage preparation course, Tom. Um, and then he said, here's my uh, marriage advice. And bear in mind, I was literally sort of walking out the door, so it was going to have to be something quick and pithy, and indeed it was. And I thought to myself, why was it that he chose to say what he said when he only had a short amount of time? And actually, I don't think I've told you this either, Dave, but this is something I've never forgotten and have implied, applied in my marriage. And partly because it was quick and pithy and easy to remember. He said, Tom, be kind to your wife. And I thought about that since, and I thought, why was that the thing he chose to say after many years of marriage to Karen? Why would that come up? And perhaps he was just saying something off the top of his head, I don't know, but nevertheless, I thought about it. And I've thought about it since, and I've thought to myself on many different occasions throughout marriage, kindness is something you can do at any one time. It always applies. You don't always actually have to be patient. But at any one time, you can apply kindness. And actually, if you're struggling with this whole thing of love, and I'm not just talking about marriage here, I'm talking about in a church context and us working together and serving together and being on teams and being in life groups and being in pastorates. 
If you're thinking, I don't know, I'm looking at this perfect picture and I think, you know, my jigsaw puzzle is very incomplete here. I want to say kindness is a wonderful place to start because you can be kind to somebody just like that. You can think of something to do for their benefit that's useful to them and you can apply it straight away. came across this lovely verse in Acts chapter 28 and verse 2 where the apostle Paul and his guys um, have been shipwrecked on the island of Malta. Uh, I didn't know Malta can have bad weather, but apparently at this point uh, it did. Uh, it was raining, it was cold, etc. And uh, Luke, writing about this, said, said this. He said, The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. So they're shipwrecked, probably feeling pretty miserable. It's raining, it's cold. And these islanders who've never met them before, what do they do? They give them, quite literally, a warm welcome. <laughs> They're welcoming and they build a fire for them. They do something for their benefit. They do something useful for them. But what stuck out to me was just that little phrase that's used here by Luke, uh, the writer of the book of Acts. He says they showed us an unusual kindness. And I thought again, just like be kind to your wife, that's going to be a little expression I think I'm going to keep with myself now. Let me exhort you. Can we be kind to people Kingsgate? But how about this? Can we show acts of unusual kindness? And going beyond where we don't have to. Isn't that a lovely little phrase? So love is patient. Love is kind. So are we patient? Are we kind? Are we cultivating love's courtesy? And who's the greatest model of this? It's not Dave Smith. Uh, it is God himself. You see, it tells us in the Bible that God is love. So if 1 Corinthians 13 is the perfect picture of love, it's also the perfect picture of God. And if Jesus is God, it's the perfect picture of Jesus as well. So Jesus is patient, Jesus is kind, God is patient, God is kind. There's a famous atheist called Robert Ingersoll, and he used to give these public atheistic speeches. And during them, he used to uh, put out his pocket watch and sort of hold it up mockingly and then put it down on the lectern where he was lecturing. And he would say, okay, God, if you're real, you have five minutes to strike me dead for the things I've been saying about you. Um, when Christian theologian Theodore Parker heard about this challenge that Ingersoll was making, he said to the person who told him about it, and did the gentleman think that he could exhaust the patience of the eternal God in five minutes? So I don't know about five minutes, but God gave me 25 years of messing about in sin and not acknowledging him, and yet he was patient through it all. He was long-suffering through it all. But he wasn't just patient with me, he was kind to me as well. He didn't just wink at my sin. He didn't overlook my sin. No, what he did was on the one hand, he was patient, but on the other hand, his kindness led me to repentance. It says in the Bible, we love because he first loved us. Jesus said, no one come, can come to me unless the Father first draws him. That is, by God's kindness, he drew me to him. Not just um, putting up with my sin, but drawing me into the forgiving, loving embrace. God is patient, God is kind, love is patient, love is kind. So let's cultivate love's courtesy. Number two, let's harness love's humility. Again, could you say that for me? So Paul talks here about three things in the negative when it comes to love in the rest of the verse. Love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. The envy is when we want what somebody else has got, or perhaps even worse, when we just don't want them to have it. Uh, boasting is when we talk of ourselves too much, and pride is when we think of ourselves too much. And I think all three of these negatives all have the same root 
and that is self-centeredness. When we think about ourselves too much, we become envious of anybody else's achievements because we think we deserve the praise they're getting. We think we're the most important thing and therefore we ought to be getting whatever they're getting. We become boasters because all that means really is verbalizing your self-centeredness. We want everyone else to know how well we're doing and talk about our achievements. And we're proud because our self-centeredness simply means really just thinking about us. And that's what pride is. It's thinking too highly of oneself. And as there's a common root, I think there is a common cure. And it's the humility of love. Instead of being self-centered, what we want to be is humble. Love is not self-centered. Love is humble. Love doesn't think too much of itself. Love rather thinks of others instead. A few years back, read a lovely little book by the American pastor and, uh, and writer, Tim Keller, uh, on 2 Corinthians, as it happens. And he was talking about this whole subject, and he was saying how self-centeredness is you know, a real problem for us, but that the answer to it isn't self-loathing. As often in some Christian traditions, has sort of come about that in order not to be self-centered, what we must go about doing is self-flagellating, going and being self-loathing, talking about how wretched we are, what a kind of filthy worm we are, and all that kind of stuff. He said, that's, that's not really the answer at all. After all, God has adopted us. We're his children. He doesn't want us to talk about ourselves like that. So the answer is not self-centeredness, nor is it self-loathing. Here's Tim Keller's phrase. It's to be self-forgetful. Isn't that a wonderful little description of what humility is all about? To be self-forgetful. Just not to think too much of ourselves, not to hate ourselves, but rather just not to think of ourselves too much. Just forget about ourselves and concentrate on others. That's humility. That's what love is like. And so again, I want to ask you about these three things. How are you doing? If the perfect picture of love has a piece which is no envy, how are you doing? Have you got that piece in place? Let's face it in life, we are always going to face the temptation to be envious, to be jealous of other people. What I've found out in my 38 years now is that however good you are at something, there's always somebody better. In fact, there's always about a million people better. Uh, however much stuff you've got, there'll always be people who've got more. However pleased you are that your kids have finally started sleeping, there's always somebody whose kids uh, you know, have been sleeping right the way through, or whatever. There's always going to be some reason that we're going to be tempted to be envious, to be jealous. And let's face it, it's a horrible feeling, isn't it? That feeling deep inside when you think, man, I'm 38 years old and I can still be jealous of people. It's a horrible feeling. It, uh, and the Bible agrees with us. Anger is cruel, Proverbs 27.4. Anger is cruel and fury overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? And yet love is not like this. Love does not get jealous. Love is not envious. And I found there are two things I can do if I ever feel tempted to envy, if I ever feel jealous of somebody else, where I can forget about myself and I can become more loving. And the two things I've started to do is this. Number one is to talk about it with somebody else. See, the thing about envy is it isn't just a horrible feeling. You get a horrible feeling about having the horrible feeling. It's, it's one of those sins that's embarrassing, like lust. You know, you don't want to talk about it, you don't want to confess it to somebody else because it's an embarrassment. And th therefore, what happens? It stays in the darkness. And what happens in the darkness? It festers, it grows, it gets worse. So what do we need to do? We need to take it out of the darkness and bring it into the light. I remember, I think it was just last year, I remember um, going to bed with Becky uh, and I was just feeling really horrible. Okay? Not about going to bed with Becky, I, I like doing that. I like that a lot, as it happens, but... <clears throat> 
on this instance, sorry about that, um, in this instance, I was feeling horrible. And I said to Becky, can I talk to you about something? She said, yeah. I said, I think I'm jealous of so-and-so. And we talked about it, and thankfully Becky didn't go, you don't need to be jealous of them, they're rubbish, you're the best, and all that, because that, that would just be feeding the same problem. Instead, in a very godly way, she just talked about why you don't need to feel like that, and of securing God, and so, and do you know what, just that little chat, and I was fine afterwards, it's taking it from the darkness into the light. And the other thing you can do when you feel jealous, envious of somebody else, is to think about them, to pray for them, and to rejoice in the successes that you're jealous about. There's a preacher called F.B. Mayer in the 19th century. And uh, he was a great preacher, but he just so happened to live around the same time as some other very great preachers. And he used to uh, have a church that was nearby, one of the greatest preachers in church history, C.H. Spurgeon. And he used to stand at the front door of his church and watch all the carriages go by as everybody flocked to C.H. Spurgeon's church. Years later, he was preaching in America, not to get away from Spurgeon, but uh, just, just to be somewhere else, part of his ministry. And people were flocking to hear him. He was, by this stage, a great preacher himself and a great minister. And many people would come and hear him. And then another great preacher came to town, a guy called uh, C. Campbell Morgan. And when he came, everybody, or well, lots of people, would leave Mayer's church and go to uh, Campbell Morgan's church. And sometimes when they preached at conferences together, everyone would flock to hear Campbell Morgan. And if Mayer came on after him, lots of people would leave. And he really struggled with this, having devoted his life to God and to being a preacher and then seeing other people get all the praise and be lifted up more than him. And he said this, I found the only way that I could deal with my emotions, this is talking about Campbell Morgan, was to pray for him. (laughs) And in praying for him, what happened? He started to realize that he had his focus on completely the wrong thing. That what he was trying to do, he was trying to preach to what? Lift up the name of God, not the name of F.B. Mayer. And that in, in, in being annoyed and being jealous of Campbell Morgan's achievements, what he was doing was actually uh, being annoyed with somebody doing the same thing he was trying to do, lift up the name of God. And in his later life, people would say, he was so humble, he was always talking about, wow, did you hear Campbell Morgan preach the other day? Wasn't he great? Through that prayer, through that forgetting about himself and getting everything in the right priority, he was able to actually enjoy and rejoice in the successes of others. So that's two things we can do, to forget about ourselves, get it into the light, put our focus on the other and and rejoice in their successes instead of thinking, we wish we had that success, we wish we were praised for those things. And that's what love is like. It doesn't think about itself doesn't decry the um, successes of others, but rather rejoices in the successes of others. Love does not envy. There's another question for you. What about boasting? Love does not boast. So if the perfect picture of love has a piece in it which says no boasting, how are you doing there? We all know what it's like to be around a boaster, a braggart. It's horrible. (laughs) You know, when somebody has literally no interest in anything you're saying, And the only reason they're listening to you is to garner enough information so they can make sure that their reply, their story, beats all the achievements you've just shared. And we can't get away from that person quick enough. Why not? Because they're not loving. They have no interest in anybody else. All they've got is an interest in telling everybody else their achievements. Well, love isn't like that. Love wants to big up the achievements of other people, not talk about its own achievements. 
And I've got to say, just like all other things, I don't think many people would say I'm a big boaster, but I do know that I'm sometimes tempted to do this. And for me, it normally comes out of insecurity. I'm a, a lecturer, and one of the funny things about being a lecturer is all your colleagues, they never actually get to see what you do. So they don't actually know whether you're any good at it or not. So every, everything about whether you're a good teacher or not is all based on hearsay. And I think this makes us all quite insecure. It certainly does me sometimes. And sometimes someone might say something to me like, oh, you know that um, Dan? Yeah, he's a great lecturer. All the students love him, don't they? He's really brilliant. And perhaps it's MV coming out, but I start thinking to myself, hmm, why are they not saying anything nice about me but saying something about Dan? And somewhere in my insecurity, what I want to do is I want to dig in to some of the achievements I've made as a teacher and boast about them, tell other people about them. And obviously, I'm not stupid enough to just go, yeah, well, I think I'm actually better than Dan. But I do find it kind of creeping out. Where they'll sort of say, oh, Dan's a very, good pre uh, a very good teacher, isn't he? And I'll find myself saying, like, yes, he, no, it's really great. It's great. It's funny enough, the other day, one of the, one of the students was saying, I mean, it's funny, really, but one of the students was just saying, you know, Tom, you, you're a brilliant lecturer. And I, don't, I don't know why I'm mentioning it, but I was like, don't praise me. I'm not interested in that. I'm a humble man. But they just carried on going, you know, you're brilliant. You're better than Dan. And, you know, we love the way you make us feel about accounting. It's just so moving and stuff. And, you know, sometimes when you're talking about weighted average cost of capital, I, I cry a little because it's just so, uh, you know. But anyway, I don't know why I'm telling you that. I'm going a bit over the top there, but that insecurity comes in. I don't like it, and I, and I want them to know. No, no, no. I, no, I can do that too. You, you go, but that's just insecurity. And what I've found is actually what I've got to do is I've got to really just think, what does the Lord think about me? He sent his only son to die for me. He loves me. I'm his precious child. He adopted me. Jesus gave up everything to come for me and to come for you. Isn't that enough? Do I really need everybody? And, and the other thing is, it doesn't work anyway. Everyone else just thinks, well, they're a boaster, and they just want to get away from you. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. Do we all need encouragement? Is it nice to get praise for the things you do? Yes. But let's face it, we have to wait for other people to do it. <laughs> and the funny thing is, if you're a boaster, no one else will ever do it. Because they think, well, he seems to know how good he is. There's no need for me to tell him, you know. And the Bible, again, agrees with us. Proverbs 27, verse 2. Let someone else praise you, and not your own mouth, an outsider and not your own lips. So how are you doing with boasting? Do you feel that temptation? Is it insecurity? Do you need to get back to the foot of the cross and look up at the sacrifice that Jesus made for you? Because that sacrifice doesn't just tell you how much you needed him and what a state of sin you were in. It also tells you how much God loves you. It says in Romans chapter five, God demonstrated his love, his agape, his attention love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If we think about that, we won't be insecure again. And there's no need to big ourselves up. Instead, we can big other people up. And when encouragement comes, we can just receive it as we're meant to receive it. And the final thing I'd like to ask you, and more briefly, pride. Love is not proud. How are you doing when it comes to that? Pride is essentially just thinking too much of ourselves. And it's very difficult to be a proud person in church because you've got to work with other people. But if you always think if they ever disagree with you, it's not just a different opinion, but a, a wrong opinion. It's going to be difficult for us to work together in love. It's very difficult to grow in love as a person because every time you hear a sermon, all you do is critique the sermon instead of applying the sermon. 
So what it has to do with is just thinking too much, thinking we've got it all sorted, not having what the Bible calls a sober judgment of ourselves. Romans 12, 3, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. It's impossible to be loving when you're proud. It's impossible to attend to the needs of others when you're only thinking about yourself. So how are you doing? If, if the picture of the, the perfect picture of love has in it humility, has no proud, pride, is that another piece that you need to put down? Love is not proud. You know, when I look at these things, and I just think, again, for us as a local church here at Kingsgate, if we can cultivate love's courtesy, that is, we can bear with one another each in love, we can be patient with one another, and more than that, we can actively be kind to one another, show unusual kindness to one another and to people around us in the community. If we can harness love's humility, that is, if we can take our mind off ourselves and get rid of our self-centeredness, not be envious of others, but instead be able to actually rejoice in their achievements, rejoice in their ministry, rejoice that they've been, I don't know, promoted to lead the prayer meeting or whatever it might be. If we can harness that humility so that we're not proud, that we're not boastful, that we're not thinking too much of ourselves or bigging up our own achievements, but instead can work with other people and can rejoice and big up their achievements. Don't you think there'll be one or two onlookers out there that'll say, look at those people at Kingsgate. See how they love one another. Thank you for your time.